the theme of our 40th anniversary celebration has been to look back as we celebrate God's faithfulness towards CBC for the past 40 years and also to look forward anticipating what God has in store for us in the coming 10 years as we begin to look forward to our 50th anniversary. And as Greg Howe reminded us last night, for those of you who were here, the world has changed profoundly since 1970 when CBC began. And these changes present big challenges for us at CBC and for all churches for that matter. All churches are, are going through this, this process of, of, of struggle and challenge as we address the, the, uh, the changes and the new realities in the world in the 21st century. As CBC embarks then on the next 10 years and in we, as we anticipate what it means for us as a church, the passage that keeps coming to my mind is Numbers 13 to 14, which was read for us earlier. And so we're diverting from the ISSL, although we usually follow that curriculum, and we're looking at Numbers 13 and 14 this morning. This story was one of those watershed moments for the people of God, and it has stood as a critical lesson for the people of God ever since. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul reflects back on the story of Moses and what God was doing as he was dealing with his children in the desert, and Paul concludes in that chapter in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So let's review the story. The Lord had mightily rescued his people from Egypt. He worked powerful miracles for them, first in Egypt and then in the desert. The Lord made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. He, he made himself known to them. He pledged his faithfulness to them. He gave them his law to shape them from a ragtag bunch of former slaves into a nation after his own heart. And then finally he came to dwell among them in the tabernacle that he had the people build according to the instructions that he gave Moses. Now the Lord has led them through the desert and to the edge of the promised land which he's pledged to give them, a wonderful, blessed land flowing with milk and honey. And in this land, God assures his people they'll enjoy peace, they'll enjoy rest, they'll flourish, and they'll, they'll prosper. And here on the edge of the land now, God instructs Moses to send 12 spies into the land to give the people a sneak preview, a taste of what lies before them. And Numbers 13.2 tells us that each of the 12 spies is a leader of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So together, these 12 men collectively represent the whole people of Israel going in to see the land. The spies go, they thoroughly investigate the land, and they come back with a report. And the report is basically, we've got some good news, and we've got some bad news. <laughs> the land is indeed bountiful. The, the, it's a wonderful land. That's the good news. But the bad news is this. There are giants in the land. There are fortified cities. This land is dangerous. This land is impregnable. We cannot take this land. After seeing the land, after fully investigating the situation, that's the final conclusion of the leaders who represent God's people. Except, of course, for Joshua and Caleb, who, who agree with those facts. The land is indeed well fortified, but they insist that God's people can take it anyway. 
So we see two perspectives here. The majority report seeks to persuade the people. They, uh, verse 20, 32, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land. The land devours those living in it. All the people are of great size. We saw the Anakites there, giants in the land. We were like grasshoppers compared to them. This report was sensationalized. It was intended to promote fear and alarm. And it worked. The, the people are distressed. They, they weep. They grumble. They think back to Egypt, the land of their slavery, and, and suddenly that past seems a lot better to them than God's future, which is now ahead of them. They talk about going back. They talk about picking new leadership. And only Caleb and Joshua argue a different case. They insist that with the Lord on their side, God's people can take the land. With the Lord on their side, the protection of the enemy is gone. Joshua and Caleb warn the people, do not give way to fear. Do not rebel against the Lord. Well, for us who sit back in comfortable safety here centuries removed from this crisis, it's perfectly clear who's right in this debate, right? We know how the story should end, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. But if we really put ourselves back in the people's shoes, if we had been there, if, if it was we who had to pick up our swords and go into battle against these giants, if it was our children whose future and safety was at risk, would we really take Joshua and Caleb's view of this matter? Well, if we're not sure, then this story has much to teach us. It searches our hearts. It challenges our perspective. It reacquaints us with the reality of the God whom we claim to serve. And it's my prayer that the story can do that for us this morning as we continue to look at it. The key to understanding this story is the concept of covenant. The Lord and the people of Israel are in a covenant relationship with one another. That is, the welfare and the future of God's people are bound up tightly with the will and the plan of God. In the ancient world, it was common for a great and powerful king and emperor to, to make a covenant with a smaller, lesser people. The lesser people and their king or, or leaders would pledge obedience and fealty to the great king. They would promise to fight in the great king's wars. They would promise to give the great king tribute, uh, kind of attacks. And in return, the great king would incorporate that people into his kingdom and would promise them protection. And the Lord has entered as the great king into such a covenant with his people. Israel had committed to being God's people and to giving the Lord uh, soul obedience and worship fighting his battles, paying him their tithes. And the Lord, likewise, had committed to being Israel's God, to offering them protection, to giving them a good land to live in within his kingdom. A covenant. Now, from the perspective of the surrounding nations, the Lord had thus become Israel's patron deity. That's the way the pagan lands would understand it. Back then, every people had their pagan uh, patron uh, God or gods, and they looked to these gods for blessing and for protection, and, and so they were careful to worship and to please their patron gods. 
if the city or the nation did well and, and flourished, this reflected well on the gods. They must be powerful gods. But if the people were conquered and were defeated by another nation, often the conquered people would abandon their gods, reasoning that the gods of their conquerors must be more powerful than their gods, so we better go with them. So, in ancient Israel's time and culture, the reputation of the deity was naturally bound up with the well-being of the people who served that deity. That's why when Israel decides to head back to Egypt and rebels against God and, and the Lord considers wiping out this rebellious people and starting over with Moses, Moses prays in chapter 14, 13 to 16, but Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people out from among them. They'll tell the inhabitants of the land about it. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who, who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. God has a problem here, doesn't he? His people have proved unfaithful to him. They have rejected him as their king. They've broken the covenant. They've rejected God's salvation. They want to go back and serve King Pharaoh again. And because God is just, he must punish their rebellion. That's what a king did when, when a, a people who pledged their, their allegiance to him by covenant turned around and rebelled against him. He, he came with his armies and he punished those rebels and traitors. Yet, by the same covenant, God's reputation is bound up with the welfare of his people. Moses recognizes this fact in verse 13 as he prays. If the Lord destroys his people, his reputation will be severely damaged among all the surrounding nations. Which, incidentally, uh, one of the reasons that God is working with Israel in the first place is in order to reveal himself to the surrounding nations. So what's the Lord to do? Well, he does the only thing he can do. He acts in keeping with his character his whole character, who he is. God is just. That's part of his character. God is merciful. That's another part of his character. He acts in keeping with his whole character. Because he's just, he can't let justice go undone. And yet, because he's also abundantly merciful to his people, he will act in keeping with his mercy. In fact, God is so abundantly merciful that his divine intention throughout history has been to extend mercy to the whole creation. That's been his driving motive as we read through the Bible. That's why he chose Israel in the first place and called them out of Egypt. That's why he spared their lives again and again though they continually proved unfaithful to him. That's why he will, in fact bring them into the promised land and cause them to flourish there so that all the nations will know how great and loving He is. That's why the Lord will continue to be faithful to His people through untold episodes of their unfaithful rebellion in the land until the fullness of time, until the day eventually when He'll send His own Son and extend His mercy not just to His people Israel but to the whole world as well. Mercy upon mercy. God is both just and merciful. 
And so in our story in Numbers 14, we see God act with both justice and with mercy. He punishes the spies and, and the whole generation of those who rebelled against Him. That's His justice. Yet He mercifully spares not only Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua, those who remain faithful to Him, but also the whole younger generation who, who He will train and nurture in the desert until their parents have died and they're old enough to go in and take the land. So that's the story. What are we to learn from it? Well, let's step back now and make some observations about what the story teaches. I'd like to um, highlight six lessons from this text. The first lesson is that when we are in a covenant relationship with the Lord, our life and our future is bound up with the Lord's will and plan. This is true of Israel in the story. God's will is to bring them into the promised land. God's will is that through His people, all the nations will learn what a great and what a good God He is. That's God's plan. That's God's only plan. And if Israel refuses to go with that plan, then they have no future, no life. Their life and future is bound up with God's plan. That's also true for us. We can go forward with God enjoying His presence and blessing and also finding ourselves in the heat of the battle very often. Or we can turn back and die in the desert. You know, there are churches like that. There are churches that are happily playing church in the desert. Never mind that God is not present with them anymore. Maybe no one's noticed. Never mind that their spiritual experience is predominantly dry and powerless. Never mind that they have no future. At least for the moment, they're safe. Second lesson. God's will and God's plan is absolutely and non-negotiably committed to establishing His good reputation on earth. Think about it. God has enough PR problems as it is. God gets enough bad press from his enemies. Imagine if God did not actively seek to, to protect and promulgate his name and his reputation in and through his people who are supposed to be faithful to him. It would be a problem not only for him but for humanity. Because how would anyone know what God is really like? How good God is, how wonderful God is, how gracious, how powerful, how fair and just He is. How will anyone know it if God lets His people continually besmirch and ruin His reputation? So, while God doesn't choose to control what His enemies say about Him, He expects His people, at least, to honor His name. And... Over the long haul, God deals with his people in such a way that his name is upheld. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, as we prayed this morning. Third lesson from the story. God's will and God's plan inevitably lead God's people into places and situations where we are way beyond our abilities and over our head. That's what the spies' report was, wasn't it? We can't conquer Canaan. 
It's way too hard for us. It's dangerous out there. When I was in college, we had a staff worker uh, who worked with our college fellowship, our Christian fellowship, and he used to remind us, if you're attempting something for God which is so modest that you can accomplish it whether or not God shows up, then your plans are not worthy of the name Christian. God regularly calls us to challenges which are bigger than us. Otherwise, what reason do we have to trust him? And how will he have any chance to show how great he is? I can tell you that I'm regularly reminded of this when I preach. Very often, as I'm preparing a sermon, I feel so weak and so inadequate. And often I'm at a loss of how, how do I put into words the message of God's word. And so I pray and I plead with God to honor his word and to give me words to say. And for us as a church, if we feel stretched and if we feel challenged in the coming years, even if we feel overwhelmed by the challenges ahead of us, that's a good sign. Won't it be exciting to see how God shows up, how God comes through as we trust him? Fourth lesson, when we face circumstances and challenges which are over our heads, we have only two choices. We can place our trust in the Lord or we can rebel against him. The Israelites in our story, of course, are overcome by fear and so they rebel. God says in chapter, 11, or chapter 14, verse 11, that they're treating him with contempt. Do you realize that when God calls us to something bigger than ourselves and we shrink back from it in fear, that we are treating God with contempt? We're saying, God, you don't really love us. You aren't really trustworthy. You won't, you can't take care of us. This is a slap in God's face. And it's an act of rebellion against his good care against the covenant he's made with us. Our other alternative, of course, is to trust him, come what may. To follow his lead, even though he lead us into the thick of the fight or into the valley of the shadow of death. And he will. Fifth lesson. If we rebel against God, he will respond with an appropriate mix of his mercy and his justice. He will be all of who God is, all of his character toward us. God is both just and merciful as we saw, and he always responds with just the right mix of the two. Well, how does he decide what that mix should be? Well, he decides on the mix which allows him to uphold his reputation, as we saw in the story this morning. In his justice, he may let a church die which is no longer following him. After all, dying churches, unfaithful churches, don't help God's reputation. We can look at our country and we've seen that Christians have done much to damage God's reputation. Yet in God's mercy, he, he raises up new works. He, he uh, starts new ministries to rejuvenate his people, to, to keep his mission going and to keep his name alive. And of course, when we confess our sins and, and we, we turn from our sin and our rebellion, God is always ready 
quickly to, to extend His mercy toward us and to give us a new beginning and renewed life. Sixth lesson, finally. Be careful which report about the future you listen to. There are always those among God's people, like the ten spies, who will spread a report laced with fear and anxiety. I think there's a real spirit of fear in the evangelical church today. We can't go forward. It's too risky. It's, it's too dangerous. It's, it's too uncomfortable. And on the surface, this kind of report can seem so persuasive and so compelling, but its fatal flaw, you'll notice, is that it leaves out the greatest reality of, of all, which is the living God who we claim to worship. All right, six powerful lessons from the story which was written for us. How do we apply them today on the occasion of our 40th anniversary? As we rejoice and we thank God for all He's done in and through CBC over the past 40 years, and as we look forward to what He has in store for us in the years ahead. Well, I want to suggest that we too, as CBC, in many ways, stand on the edge of the promised land that the path that God has laid before us is both fraught with danger and is abounding in blessing. God has called us to minister in a world today which is lost and adrift, and so people hunger for spiritual realities as much or more than ever. And yet, at the same time, the ways we reached people in the past and even the particular ways we, we articulated the unchanging gospel and contextualized it don't work, don't resonate anymore the way they used to. In fact, sometimes they unnecessarily offend. As Greg reminded us, for those of you who were here last night, there have been seismic shifts in our culture in past decades, and so our context is very different, and ministry realities are very different today from what they were 40 years ago. People are increasingly ignorant about the basics of Christianity. Study the Bible. What's the Bible? Why would we want to study that? You know, you've got to get over that question first, as Q Place, na formerly Neighborhood Bible Studies, has realized. So people are ignorant about the basics. They're also increasingly hostile and suspicious toward organized expressions of religion. Churches. Our world today is shaped by realities, and you've heard all the buzzwords, pluralism, relativism, post-Christendom, post-modernism, information technology, the, pro the proliferation. Uh, Greg talked about uh, technological natives last night. Immigration, this global economy, individualism, narcissism, on and on it goes, all the isms. So we have a church have a choice as we face the world in the 24th century. We can pull down the shades and we can pretend that all this change isn't going on and we can look at church as a safe place to hide away from the growing tide of darkness. Or we can engage the world that's out there with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me put the choice before us like this. We can choose the path of survival or we can choose the path of sacrifice. Survival 
or sacrifice. This is the choice before Israel in our story. And it's the choice that Jesus puts before all of his followers. We remembered this morning as we celebrated the Lord's Supper together that central to our faith and, and central to Jesus' purpose for coming to this earth is his sacrificial death on the cross. And the cross reminds us of, of God's sacrifice as an expression of his love for us, as an expression of his love for this whole world to, to wash away our sins. And Jesus calls us not only to receive that act of sacrifice on the cross, Jesus also calls us to imitate it. We're great with the receive part. We constantly have to go back and remember the imitate part. Jesus taught us, though, didn't he, that the last shall be first. That it's those who lose their lives who will find them. That those who want to be great must learn to be the servants. And that only those who die to themselves will find life. Jesus taught us that if we want to follow him and if we want to really live, we must choose sacrifice over survival. Now I realize this is counterintuitive. Eugene Peterson, who translated the uh, message version of the Bible, illustrates this well. He tells the story one time he was leaning over his back fence watching a neighbor of his who was trying to take the lawnmower blade off his mower so he could sharpen it. And he, he tried a wrench, but, but the, the bolt just wouldn't budge. And so he got a bigger, longer wrench, and he tried that. And the thing still wouldn't budge. So he found a pipe, and he stuck it over the handle of the wrench to get more leverage, and, and he, he w was pulling and tugging on the bolt, but it just wouldn't budge. And by now he's getting emotionally involved in this situation. And so he goes and he finds a big rock and he starts pounding on the pipe, which is on the end of this big wrench. But the thing just won't come loose. Well, about this time another neighbor comes over and, and thoughtfully surveys the situation and then bends over and looks at the mower. And then he casually says, I used to have one of those, that particular model is a reverse thread. <laughs> Try turning it the other way. And the red-faced neighbor did, and sure enough, the bolt came right off. Peterson concludes, the Christian life, likewise, is reverse thread. It's counterintuitive. Are you pulling and, and banging to try to get life to work for you? Jesus says, try turning it the other way. To find your life, you must lose it. To be great, you must be least. To find the way to life, to find the way to the promised land, is not to take the path of survival. It's actually to take the path of sacrifice. Now this, of course, has many applications to our relationships, to our career choices, to our daily moral choices. But I heard, heard a sermon recently which really struck me, and, and I thought of it in terms of this morning. The preacher said something so obvious that I don't know how I'd missed it so long, but he, he said that this reverse thread dynamic doesn't just apply to our personal lives. It also applies to our corporate life together as the people of God.
as a church. That we as a church, too, have to choose between survival and sacrifice. That we can shape our church in such a way that it meets our needs and it provides for our safety and for our comfort. Or we can step out of our comfort zones and we can engage the world we live in in a sacrificial way. When I was a missionary in Hungary uh, back in the early 90s, 90s, I had a friend who was a church planter, and he once said to me, you know, it's tough to keep a church focused on Jesus' mission of reaching out. And he said, the reason is that because any decision that a church makes, I mean, we've all been to the business meetings, there are always a bunch of options and, and a bunch of opinions about what we should do. But too often, the only options we consider are the ones which reflect the needs and wishes of those already in the church who show up at business meetings. That's because the only voices at the table are those on the, of the insiders. Who speaks up at the business meetings, at the board meetings, at the, the coffee times that we have where we discuss church stuff informally with one another? Who speaks up at those times for those on the outside? who Jesus has called us to reach. Some of us who are gifted in evangelism, there's some of you out there, you do that until you're red in the face and you get discouraged. It's so easy for churches to become self-serving and survival-minded. Thankfully, by God's grace, this hasn't been true of CBC in the past. Over the past 40 years, we have sent out missionaries we have given generously to missions, a large part of our, our church budget. We have given time and energy to neighborhood Bible studies and to other ministries which benefit those on the outside. But over the years, we've seen our numbers plateau and we've seen them ease downward, in part at least because the world around us has been rapidly changing and approaches which worked in the past don't work or connect with people the same the way they used to. So do you feel the temptation like I do to shift into survival mode? The challenges can feel overwhelming and threatening and it's, it's tempting for a small church like ours to, to scramble just to find enough warm bodies to staff our programs, to meet our expenses, to share the load. But for what? Just to survive? so that we can have a comfortable church here to attend where we're safe from the world? Jesus is calling us to more than that. He came, he shed his blood, he died for more than that. He's calling us to give our lives for the sake of the world. This means embracing the times in which we live. Of, it means um, exercising some different muscles maybe than we've exercised before. Perhaps innovating and experimenting and, and trying some new things and taking some risks. Maybe failing along the way and picking ourselves up and trying again. And that would be a sacrifice. But remember, God is uncompromisingly committed to extending his reputation in the world. And since we are in a covenant relationship with God, our future is bound up with that will and plan of God. Yes, God, God's will inevitably leads us into places of sacrifice, places which are beyond our ability and over our heads. 
But if we refuse to place our trust in him, as he leads us into those places, our only other choice is to rebel against him. On the other hand, to go forward with God, to sacrifice, will require a great deal of trust. But remember, before us lies the promised land. Let's pray. God, thank you that you sent your son to give us the example, to teach us that this life, this world, and the life we live in it as human beings is a reverse thread life, that counterintuitive though it may be, to be fully human, to be in your image, who you've created us to be, is to live a life of sacrifice, not a life of survival. And that when we do, we actually find life, surprisingly enough. And I pray for our church as we face the years ahead, that we would walk closely with Jesus and that we would model the life he taught us and called us to live. And that we would see amazing things, even as we for the sake of Jesus, pay the cost of sacrifices he paid for us. But God, you've promised us that it will be more than worth it and we think about that last day when we gather around your throne. Um, all those who have suffered, who have been vindicated and who uh, stand rejoicing in glory that you have made all things right, you have restored all things, and you have given us life everlasting in a new, redeemed, restored, forever world. And um, help us to keep that hope before us as we go forward with you. In Jesus' name, amen.